I would like to thank the rest of the session and you, the congregation, for allowing me to bring God's word to you today. Uh, our sermon is going to be uh, from 1 John 2.28. It's 1 John, not the Gospel of John. 1 John 2.28 through 3.3. And I neglect, I, got, I didn't get the page number ahead of time. Ten eighty-three. Thank you. This is God's holy, precious word. The Apostle John writes, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not been revealed that we sh what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Let us pray. Oh, great God, Heavenly Father, you are the embodiment of truth. Your word is truth. And as we come to it right now, we are basically coming on holy ground. These are precious things that you've given us, O oh Father, and I pray that the, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts would it be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We who have Jesus Christ, we have a wonderful hope. Amen? Amen. He is the anchor of our souls, and we are commanded to walk by faith and not by sight in this world. But we have to admit the last one and a half years, it's kind of been a troubling time for a lot of us. It all started with the COVID-19. We know what kind of things we, we've been through. It's kind of thrown a wrench in the things that we took for granted. You know, small things like going out to the restaurant for dinner or going to the movies and see a new uh, a movie out there or even concerts, which Joe and I used to do. Um, but we all may have seen a quote-unquote wrench thrown into our spiritual lives as well. You know, we, we know at times the church's worship has been disrupted, its uh, fellowship has been compromised. Um, all the while, which I think is even worse during this time, other than the inconveniences, um, is what we see in the world around us. The ever-growing antagonistic Christian sentiment that we see growing around us. We look at our society, and we witness the moral decay. It leaves us with apprehension of what lies ahead. Many have said that the, uh, the handwriting's on the wall, and that Christian, Christian persecution could indeed be coming. Only God knows, and uh, we pray uh, that his will would be done. But as we look to the scripture reading today, the letters of John actually represent an unhappy time for the church back then, the Christian communities. There was a time of dispute in this age uh, between believers involving theological and behavioral concerns. John's letters represent only one side of the argument, 
We don't know exactly what the opponents were saying, but we see the things that John writes. It's really containing the truth of God. And what he's including in this epistle, you will see that many things he puts in the Gospel of John, he uses here in the, the epistle as well. Now, the apostle has written uh, to what was probably a circular letter going around the community uh, in the churches around uh, the, the city of Ephesus. Uh, the churches to which John was associated with uh, that um, people referred to the uh, Johannan community. Many false teachings had arisen in this church. Uh, such things like Jesus uh, had not really come in the flesh, that it only appeared that way. Other things, that is, death and resurrection, really aren't necessary for our salvation. That living in obedience to Christ it was not really necessary, and still by doing that you could achieve a state of purity, because after all, the body was nothing. What really counts is, you know, the spirit. So, often regarded as the secessionists, these people, they represented a theological movement of uh, docetism which was an integral part, an integral teaching of Gnosticism. Many debates have arisen actually to who these people were or what individuals may have led the moment. However, in any effect, they were early Christian heretics that were not, to, were not content to keep their views to themselves, thus creating division, confusion, anxiety among the church members. Now, we look in the world around us Today, we see things similarly. We see these kind of circumstances really shouldn't surprise us. After all, this is a fallen world. Okay, um, It's led and ruled um, by the evil one, the prince of the darkness of the air, and the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. We know ultimately that Jesus is Lord, but yes, this world is still under the domain of the evil one. He's always been at war at the church. Uh, the, he's always at war with the redeemed and blood-bought adopted sons and daughters of Jesus Christ who live for and enjoy God. His objective is to stifle the proclamation of God's truth, paralyze the church, and deceive many to their eventual destruction. This will be, <coughs> excuse me, this will be until the consummation of all things and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the world around us, too, um, includes those that the evil one has blinded and held captive uh, to the things of the war, uh, things of God. This is the world we de deal with, with people on an everyday basis. We look at the world, people that aren't in Christ. You, you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where Paul refers to us as God's children being the aroma of life leading to life and uh, to each other. But to the unbelieving world, we are the aroma of death leading to death. So we know that there is lack of acceptance in the things of the world to the things in the truth of God. So again, distorting the truth of God, using his people, using the worldly system, accusing and unsettling his people is Satan's constant aim, and he has his captives to carry it out. So the visible church, us, and God's church in the world right now, has never had it easy on this side of heaven. We see it all through scripture. It's a struggle. It's spiritual warfare. A man who had discipled me years ago, he kept saying, this is Ken, this is spiritual warfare. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, the evil one. And to top it all off, not only do we have the evil one to deal with, the worldly system, but what else? We have our own flesh to deal with. The old man. 
And if we try to put it to death, we need to mortify sin, but it doesn't go easy. It doesn't go with a lot of kicking and screaming. And uh, we see this in Galatians. When Paul writes, he says it's to walk in the Spirit. He says, for the flesh, flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. So you do not do the things that you wish. So John is writing, the Apostle John is writing to the church, and it's preserved by God's providence, uh, the writings that we read today. It was to bolster the Christian's assurance during this time to show that they are really in the truth. Yes, he is responding to the cessationist teachers of the time, their heretical teaching, but his epistle is also contains, contains teachings essential for all Christians in every age, for any trial, temptation, and difficulties that we may encounter. A quote from John Calvin, Doubtless our condition in this world will include many hardships, he says, but God's will is that Christ's kingdom should be encompassed with many enemies, his design being to keep us in a state of constant warfare. Therefore, it becomes to us to ex exercise patience and meekness and assured of God's aid boldly to consider the rage of the world as nothing. So it's Calvin has said that it's God's will that we go through this state of warfare on this side of heaven. We know that he uses it for good. We read that in um, Romans 8. All things work together for good. Even the evil schemes of the evil one are trials that we have to go through because of the evil one, God is using them for good to refine us, to mold us into the image of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not concerned so much with our comfort, probably not at all. God's primary concern with our lives is us to be pure as he is pure. And also Calvin in his quotement says, we can be assured that we can be assured of God's being with us. God never promised us a rose garden as I like to see, but he did promise he would always be there for us. So this COVID time, as we look back in the past year and a half, there's been fear for a lot of us. Fear paralyzes our Christian service sometimes and possibly causes us to take our focus off our loving heavenly father. Instead, of, instead we look to ourselves. We have had, I've experienced it too, many of you had too. We have frustration with our authorities and the changes brought forth in our everyday lives and at times it overwhelms us to sinful practices, unrighteous anger, division, and strife. Many have used this time not to come to worship or fellowship with God's people. More aloneness has possibly led some to more depression, excesses maybe in gluttonous behavior, such as a high consumption of food and drink, uh, sinning against our own body, leading to poor health and drunkenness. During these times, we have the tendency to forget to whom we belong, to whom we belong, what we are, and we, where we are going. So I entitled this sermon, The Who, What, and Where of Perseverance. All this leads to nothing that we've talked about with this COVID time than the shaking of our assurance. Yes, the world, the flesh, and the devil is always working its attempts to thwart the proclamation of God, but John has things to say to us today. My three main points of the sermon, they're divided into three sections, verses uh, 1 John 2, 28 and 29. The title of that is, Who We Belong To. The second is just John 3, 1, with what we are. And... Verses 1 John 3, 2, 3, 2 through 3, where we are going. 
So John Wright, John writes in 2, 28 and 29, he says, Now children, abide in him, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him and his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is of him. Scholars will tell you that 1 John is difficult to fit in a neat outline. There are many thoughts uh, regarding our scripture passage today. Um, John Montgomery Boyce, I used his commentary quite a bit, along with Calvin and, uh, and Colin Cruz from Australia for this sermon. But John, John Montgomery Boyce says, to the modern leader, reader, what we're looking at today is like a parenthesis um, in this section. It's a summary of the first presentation, you could say, from verses 224 to 227 above, and an introduction to the second part, which includes verses uh, chapter 3, 4 through 9 where John again picks up the theme of the importance of Christian obedience. Now John has already spoken to his readers about righteousness and the need to be obedient to Christ in chapter 2, and we need to abide in him, abide in him in verse 27. This is the only way that we can remain obedient to God if we abide in Christ. So John is bringing up the importance of uh, um, purity and keeping his commandments, but he does so again in verses 28 in 29 in a new context and that new context is in light of Christ's return Christ is coming again now what does it mean that we um, uh, that we abide in Christ okay when we when we come to faith in Christ it's be, abiding in Christ is a position of all true believers it's the difference between those who are saved and those who are not saved we know that by grace we have been saved through faith that the faith that God gives us, when we come to faith, well, God actually gives us his Holy Spirit. He regenerates our hearts. He gives us the faith. We are born again. And that we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And by that, the Holy Spirit, we are able to abide in Christ by faith. We are one with him. We belong to Christ. We are in Christ as a major theme in, the, in Paul's, um, in, the, in the New Testament. So there we are for to glorify God in our bodies, since our bodies belong to Christ. Um, we are to glorify God in our bodies and our spirit, which are, God, uh, are God's. That's 1 Corinthians 6. Jesus uses the illustration of a vine uh, when we abide in him. Uh, he, in his I am sayings in the, the, uh, John's gospel. If you turn to me to John 15, 3 through 6. John 15, 3 through 6. Again, picking up this point, these are the words of Jesus. You, you are already clean because the word which I, I have spoken to you. Abide in me. There's that word again. And I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. So if we are in Christ, we are in him, the true vine. Now John says those who abide in Christ are to live righteous lives in order that they may have confidence and not be put to shame at Jesus' at Jesus's return. If you would uh, turn with me to Mark 8.38, Mark 8.38, Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. 
Mark, again, later on, in chapter 13, verse 13, says, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures, he who endures to the end will be saved. Again, referring to the end when Christ comes. And then Mark 13, 32, 33, Mark says, But that day and no hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, but the Son of God, not the Son of God, but only the Father. Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. So John is bringing these up, not as a mere point of doctrine, as you might think, but rather as an incentive for living the righteous life. Righteousness, like purity of doctrine, can only be, again, by abiding in Christ, whom we belong to. Now, sometimes believers, and I've seen this, have made the mistake of the return of Christ as it were escape valve uh, from having to face the rash, uh, uh, the rash realities of life. Um, for in other words, that, well, God's in control, God is sovereign, life's tough, I'm just going to hide away and let God deal with it. And I'm just going to wait till Jesus comes and then everything will be fine. Okay? Some have even rejoiced when the, the world gets worse and worse with the moral decline, thinking that the more things get worse, oh, that means Christ's going to be coming soon. And so they rejoice in that. This is wrong, and John will not stand for it. He says, what happens when a Christian understands? He's basically saying, what happens when a Christian understands that Jesus is returning uh, and must understand, I'm sorry, they, they must give an account before him? The answer is to purify himself as he, Jesus, is pure. One who really understands the truth of the gospel, what I say to people, do we really believe what we truly believe? If we do, we're likely to strive to bring the gospel to broken men and women over the heartbreak he feels, God feels, for a suffering world. So we have the good news. It's like telling people where to find, starving people where to find bread. And that is how our motivation should be. Not hiding away, but we have work to do to share the good news. We have it all in Christ, and we need um, to bring the news to other people. Calvin uh, says something in regards to this. In his commentary, he says, For faith is not a naked and frigid apprehension of Christ, but a lively and real sense of his power, which produces confidence. Indeed, faith cannot stand while being tossed daily by so many waves, except it looks to the coming of Christ. And supported by his power, brings tranquility to the conscious. And also being in Christ, we are in a new family. We're not in the world anymore, we're in the family of God, which we'll get to more in just a minute. So there's also the idea of inherited family traits, okay? And there are a lot of times, um, Joe and I will be talking, you know, going about our everyday lives, and she'll say, you're just like your father. <laughs> and she'll say, or other times, you're just like your mother. And I love my parents deeply, you know, I love them, but, you know, there's some things about your parents you're really hoping you don't get, right? And I said, oh, don't tell me that, don't tell me that. And she says, well, how could it be any other way, you know? We get the genetic material, we pick up things, their habits, and so forth. It's the same thing with being Christ. We should start mimicking the traits of the family that we are now in. Okay, Okay. now let's move on to 1 John, uh, what we are. We touched on that as being children of God. But um, John says in verse 1, chapter 3, he says, Behold! What manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. 
Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. So the way John's writing here, this is not just a legal declaration, as some may think when it comes to God. Okay, my sins are forgiven. No condemnation for you. Next case, next, you know. It's not like that at all. It's not just being adopted because we believed. Um, that is something we did. Nor are we any way worthy. But no, this is a real work flowing from the love of God making us born again into his family, loving us so much that our, than our earthly fathers ever could. We are actually... In, uh, we are actually children of God by a new birth, which he caused and brought forth. And he's transforming us into the likeness of his son. We see this in John, the, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, 12 and 13, where John writes, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And sometimes it's hard for us to really get, hit that, get that into our bloodstream, especially if any of us have grown up in families where fathers, maybe our earthly father didn't affirm us as much um, as they should have. Okay, um, Give you an example. And, you know, I kind of have one of those experiences. I mean, you know, my father was great. He had a lot of good points. But, you know, um, a lot of us have struggled. We didn't get that affirmation. You know, affirmation from our fathers and sometimes it's some of us to really you know think boy this is sometimes we think this is too good to be true you know that I could be loved so much by God and Joe my wife said to me one time you know when I was struggling with the love of God she says she says you know how much I love you right and yeah and she says or the, or the cat you know I remember we had a great cat right you know the cat taught the world of me you know she says imagine how much I love you and the cat loves you she says but we're fallen. I mean, this is a fallen world. It's an animal, and I'm sinful. Can you imagine God, who's God and has no sin? Do you realize how much He can love you? And that applies to all of you as well. And um, uh, we read this uh, Romans five eight. If you want to turn there, or I can just read it. Romans five eight, well known verse. A lot of you know, but God demonstrates His own love towards us, and that way we're still sinners. Christ died for us. And in Galatians four six. And because you are sons, Paul writes, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. And a lot of you know that the translation for Abba is not only father, but daddy. You know, that, that, that uh, connection there, that um, the way we can approach the God of the universe is our daddy, if you want to uh, say that. John Owen, um, classic Puritan uh, um, a lot of you know about. He has this classic devotional gem. It's called Communion with God. He comments on a typical problem of God's people. He writes, Unacquaintedness with our mercies and our privileges is sin as well as our trouble. So what John Owens is saying, the fact that we don't grasp this, we don't realize the great gift that we've been giving in Christ, who we are, who we are, uh, who we are and who we belong to, if we don't realize that, that's basically sin. And it's, it's our trouble as well. You know, R.C. Sproul used to say, he says, if, if, you re if we really believe what we say we believe, I mean, everything that comes out of the scripture, if we truly believe everything we see, I mean, truly, and the only reason we don't, because we struggle with sin, but if we truly believe in everything, God said, nobody would recognize us tomorrow. Nobody would recognize us. We'd be so transformed. But the trouble is we doubt. 
And we see what John Owen says about that. So what John Owens meant that as God's people, we often fail to ponder what God has bestowed on us. We go on heavily when we should rejoice. Uh, we're weak when we should be strong. So John is writing the, to these things to the believers in this uh, community who have been shaken. They are lacking assurance because they've been accused by the false teachers that they weren't really in the faith. One commentator says this verse, 3-1, is the epics. It is an epic, is an epic of God's grace, the privilege of sonship or daughtership, you could say. The writings of the apostles, Paul and John, if you go through the New Testament, it's almost like they're lost in wonder of this truth that we are sons and daughters of God. In fact, verses 1 through 3 in God, uh, John's Gospel in chapter 1 uh, one commentary said may be the most amazing, sublime statement in all of Scripture. And then, going back to the verse, John writes, Behold. How many of you have gone you know, to many spectacular places? Could be Grand Canyon, uh, Niagara Falls, hiking in the Adirondacks, great view. How often do you go up there and go, oh, yeah, that's nice. Okay, let's go. You know, no, you... you you know, unless you've climbed it like 15 times, like I climbed Button Mountain, you go, okay, that's great. But, you know, most places you go to, you, you stand there and you take it all in. Like, wow, you know, Niagara Falls, Grand Canyon. It's like John is saying this. He says, behold. He says, he gives an illustration of stopping to look. He says, he says, he's given a command. He says, lock your eyes on this. This is to transform our mindset. Not to be shaken, that is all going around us, like the COVID lockdown, the economy we look at, our livelihood, the political uncertainty, and yes, our even our own deaths. We who are apathetic and stagnant, it's like John's saying to us, he says, are you looking what I'm looking at? We're children of God. When we're accused and struggling with sin, we remember this truth. If we do not lock our eyes of faith on this, how can the worldly, if we lock our, if we do lock our eyes on this, how can the worldly chaos seen all around us even move us or bring us down? Hence the quote by R.C. Sproul I just brought a few minutes ago. Yes, John does not tell us, yes, John does tell us in the rest of the epistle that we must consider our obedience, our growth, our love for the brethren, to see if we're really in the faith a lot of times, but we must know that our status before God is not because of ourselves. Our security is not bound in our performance, but is laid in the core of God's colossal love. So God's love, in fact, uh, John says that the world does not know us because it did not know him. God's love has separated us from the rest of the world that doesn't know him. John explains, though we are privileged children of God, we have no mark of excellency in us. Often God chooses the weaker things of this world uh, to, you know, to bring to faith, you know, to shame the prideful. Um, we have no mark of excellency that stands out to the unbelieving world. We talked about how the unbelieving world can see us sometimes. And, um, so this is part of our struggles as, as well. In uh, 1 Timothy 3.12, Paul writes, Timothy, yes, all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. Not may, but will. And we've discussed that, why that is going on. 
So where are we going? Okay, 1 John 3, 2, and 3. Beloved, now, John wrote, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, and we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, as John continues to write, there's something coming that's even greater. Colin Cruz, commentator from Australia, commentary I use, he emphasizes something which he affirmed in the previous verse, John does. He emphasized something from the previous verse, but now emphasizes now. Now we're one thing, we're children of God. But what we are now is in contrast to what later, uh, we'll, we'll have later, because this is yet to be revealed, what we shall be. Now, our present condition, although very wonderful, is very short of the glory that we will have with God's children. We are dust, and shadow of death is always before our eyes. We are subject to a thousand miseries and exposed to innumerable evils. It is all the more necessary that our thoughts should be withdrawn from the present view of all things, lest we become overwhelmed in our faith shaken because of the joy and bliss that awaits us, something that is yet lies hidden from us. As God's people on earth, we live in an overlap, you could say, of the ages. It's in a period where uh, uh, the old order of death and sin is slowly passing away, and the new order of life and righteousness is becoming more and more reality in Christ's return, which is ever eminent. We're one day closer every day. Though belonging to this new order, we retain a connection to the old, which we talked about, until we are glorified. John Calvin, again, says, Our faith cannot stand otherwise than by looking to the coming of Christ. Right now, Calvin states, we being, we're being enclosed as slaves in the pr prison of our flesh, far distant from the full sovereignty of heaven and earth. The reason why God defers the manifestation of his glory is this, because Christ is not manifested in the power of his kingdom. We can't comprehend uh, this, but one thing is known, as John, as John writes in, uh, in his passage here, he says, we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. One commentator emphasized the we know. When Christ appears, we shall be like him. Philippians 3.21 when Paul writes, kind of alludes to this, he says, God, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Colossians 3, 4, Paul writes, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Now, being like him, you know, a lot of people are confused. What does it mean to be like Christ? Uh, you know, we're not going to be like little Christ. We're not going to be gods, obviously. It doesn't, there's got to be some difference between the head, which is Christ, and its members. Um, but the manifest, it means that our vile bodies, having been plagued with sin, is made conformable to his glorious body. The manifestation of our glory is really connected with the coming of Christ. Our glorious nature as God's children will be revealed as we appear with him in glory. To see him as he is, John writes, we will see God as he is. 
marvelous in, um, comment, uh, commentaries on this verse. Now the verb to see, it's used in uh, the epistle in different ways. Uh, the verb to see can mean physical seeing. You know, we see outside, we see the picnic pad, we see the trees outside. Or it could be seeing through the eyes of faith. Like, for example, when Jesus talked to Nicodemus, he says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus wasn't really seeing the kingdom of God. He was seeing the things pertaining to God, okay? But what Cruz here is saying, he's, he's saying, talking about a different order. He says, seeing him as he is, is not seeing him as he was during his days of his earthly ministry, nor seeing him, oh, um, nor seeing him, uh, nor seeing him with the eyes of faith, but seeing him as he is now in heavenly glory. And what Cruz says, in the sight of him, John, uh, yeah, and what he says John is saying, will be enough for us to be like him. 1 Corinthians 13.12, Paul alludes to this, for now we see in a mirror. We see dimly, but, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. And he also, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all, all of us here, with an unveiled face, beholding as a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, when John writes in verse 3, Everyone who has his hope in heaven purifies himself just as he is pure. You know, hope, um, a lot of you know this, but it's important uh, to bring it up. When we, in the world, the way we conduct our lives, when we say the word hope, you know, it's like, oh, I just hope I can get that. Or I hope, uh, I don't know, I hope Joe gets me that book I wanted for Christmas. Or, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, I hope, uh, yeah, whatever, could be anything. It's not a certainty, but we just hope. It's wishful thinking. And, but when you use the word hope in Scripture, it means steadfast. It's surety. It's going to happen. It's, our hope is sound and steadfast. It's not a wishful thinking. It's a done deal. So what can be inferred from this verse is that the surety of Christ's return and his glory, we see him as he is. Uh, it will be with the one we love. I can't wait for that. Uh, this, this idea should stimulate us and excite us. As we strive for purity, be ready for his coming, for it leads us straight to Christ as we do this, who will bring us to his and our heavenly home. I'm going to just quickly turn to Psalm 120 in the Old Testament. It's like you got Psalm 119 before 120. It's like you got pages and pages and pages of Psalm 119. And then you come to 120 and you kind of get a breather here. Uh, it's, it's a shorter, shorter psalm. The psalmist writes, In my distress I cried to the Lord, and he heard me. Deliver my soul, Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, or what shall be done to you, you false tongue? Sharp arrows of the warrior with coals of the brown broom tree. Woe is me that I dwell in Meshech, that I may dwell among the Kents of Kedar tents of Kedar. My soul has dwelt too long with one who hates peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are all for war. So when we read this psalm, we look at a psalmist here, he's far from home. He's in the midst of his enemies and strangers who hate him and will not live at peace with him. 
or anyone else. They want nothing to do uh, with the psalmist or his ways. But the psalmist, he finds refuge. He finds refuge in the fact that God is not afar off and is within earshot. God will one day bring justice and avenge. The psalmist may be far away, hostile place, but the good news is that he's not staying there, just as we are not staying here. God is bringing him home as he's going to bring us home. And because the psalmist is on his way home, he can sing praise to God even in this dark place. So, are you, brothers and sisters, do you find yourself at times discouraged, frustrated, angry, feeling hopeless, worried, even depressed? John wrote to these early believers who were struggling in a confusing time as well. They questioned their insurance in knowing Christ. Um, many were prone to listening to false teachings, and they were distracted by worldly pressures, thereby abandoning the faith or at least hindering their growth and service to their first love. Our first love is Jesus Christ. Even without these COVID times, keeping on, keeping on is hard. We deal with ourselves, our own sin. We deal with the world and ultimately the evil one. We must press on. We must press on remembering and focusing on our future hope and glory. Paul writes, in Philippians 3, 12 through 14, one of my favorite verses of all time. <laughs> he says, not that I have already attained, meaning perfection. Okay, not that I have already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of for that which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal. For the upward call of the upward, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Another excellent verse that Paul writes, as a lot of us as we're getting older, and we uh, we know death is always before us. You know, one out of one person dies. Joe and I see ourselves getting older, but Paul says we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, just a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The Puritan Samuel Rutherford, he wrote years ago, he wrote, his people, I mean God's people, must be content with what he carves out for them. Christ and his followers suffered before they reached the top of the mountain. But our soft natures, and we kind of lean probably in our first, we deal more with first world problems here than anything. Um, but our soft nature desires heaven with ease. All who have gone before have found sharp storms that took the hide off their face and many enemies in the way. His ways are far above me with windings we cannot see. Obstacles are written in the Lord's book by his wise and unerring providence. We see only the outside of things. It is a well-spent journey to crawl on hands and feet to enjoy him at the wellhead. 
Let us not be weary. We are closer than when we first believed. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, can you imagine when you get there in heaven? I mean, I think about it, and I, I bring it up now, struggling with even, like, welling eyes, you know? I mean, I mean, the things that we worry about, you know, we examine ourselves, we deal with our sin, we deal with the world, the, the, the tragedies. Can you imagine, you know, we, we even worry about our own death. I mean, uh, but can you imagine when we are in God's presence? I mean, free from the presence of sin around us, but even better, free from the sin that we struggle with now. I long for that. There was a part in Scripture, if anybody wants to approach me after the sermon, there's something I read years ago that coming into the kingdom of heaven was like an illustration of like a calf being released from the barn and jumping through the long grass in the field, released from the stalls and running. And I, I looked for that in preparation for the sermon, but I remember years ago thinking about that. What a great picture it will be for heaven, the freedom, the excitement, and not only is it going to last for a little while, but it's going to last for eternity. But suppose you're here today and you never had this hope or you've rejected the gospel. Gospel means good news. Suppose you've rejected the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, Christ died for the ungodly for which, which we all qualify. Motivated by love and for his glory, the great triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit has provided a way in which our rejection of him in our rebellion of him can not only be forgiven, which is mercy, but that we would receive the glorious bliss of heaven, which is according to his grace. This by being adopted as his son or daughter. All ours, all ours, if we only place our faith in Christ, who suffered, died, and rose again for sinners, and, and that we follow him. And just to conclude, Jesus wrote, and, and uh, it's recorded in John chapter 5, verse 24. Jesus himself said, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Let us pray. Great God and Heavenly Father, what a glorious hope you have given us. These words of the Apostle John stimulate our hearts. May they stimulate our hearts and give us excitement to know who we are truly are, the, the privilege of being adopted sons and daughters in Christ, and what awaits us, O oh Lord, your heavenly kingdom. But Father, until then, until you call or come, we are at your service. Let this joy that abounds in us lead us to works of purity, pure hearts, a desire to tell others about the good news of Christ, to live as ambassadors to a fallen world, that, Lord, that we may proclaim your name. Help us make you, the invisible God, visible to a world in darkness. Bless us as we go this day. In Christ's name, amen.